Today we're going to be finishing off in 1 Peter 2. Really starting with verse 13. And the way we left off is we talked about our conduct. Uh, Peter speaks about Christians' conduct among the unsaved. Remember, he's writing to believers scattered all out uh, around the Roman Empire. And he just wants to remind them of who they are in Christ. And just because they may be even a little isolated at times, that not to forget who we are as children of God and what the Bible says about our behavior, especially among the unsaved world. Uh, And he continues this thought and starts a whole series, which really is going to take us through the rest of chapter uh, 2 and all of chapter 3 with submission, Uh, something that we as believers love submission just as much as we love change, right? You have to change. I have to do what? I think I'm fine the way I am. But we're going to get into a lot of subjects today. We'll cover actually a little bit of American history, so I hope you've had enough coffee, Uh, a little bit of civics, a few laws, crime and punishment, police, military, and war, because we're really going to talk about the government and what does the Bible say about the government, okay? So you might find it interesting. I found it interesting studying it. So starting with verse 13, Peter says, therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or as to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good, for this is the will of God that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using your liberty as a cloak for vice, but as servants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Therefore, Peter uses this therefore connecting verse, uh, connecting word a few times in the scripture. The antecedent, what came before, was that we were sojourners in this world. We're citizens of heaven and we're passing through. Therefore, the concept that results in proper behavior. So in this particular instance, therefore, because we are sojourners in this world, we do set an example. What's supposed to follow is a certain type of behavior. And one of the things he speaks about is submission to government. And verse 15, he says, this is the will of God. Now, the idea here is that the government or human government is the opposite of anarchy. Now, the word anarchy is literally a transliterated Greek word into the English. It means without leadership. It's, you know, no one's at the helm. It's chaos. It's disorder. First Corinthians tells us that God is not the God of disorder or anarchy, but he is the God of peace. Verse 14 tells us that the government's proper role, if it's functioning properly, is number one, to punish evildoers, and to praise those who are civic-minded or philanthropic. Now, I'm going to do something that's out of the ordinary on a Sunday. I'm going to actually answer about seven questions that many have asked, and I've even asked as a new believer, when dealing with this subject. Right? So I'm going to go through seven points that people ask about this subject and try to do the best I can to answer them. So the first one is, what about submission to a corrupt government? Well... Any government with humans, sinful humans, at its helm, there's going to be an element of corruption. Unfortunately, to the unsaved, power is like a drug. And even in a representative form of government like the one that we live in, we see these guys and gals. The longer they stay in office, it seems like they drink the Kool-Aid. You know, they become uh, high on this power trip. So we know that any government run by men will have an element of corruption to it. However... From my reading of the scripture, it's certainly better than anarchy. 
And maybe if you've watched the movies where there's no government or after a nuclear bomb and everyone's just running around with guns on motorcycles and, you know, he who has the guns has also the food and the water because he has the guns, right? Uh, and we've even seen that little, uh, a microcosm of that in our own country with Hurricane Katrina in New, New Orleans. Remember, there was chaos and uh, there were literally gangs running the streets there were murders, there were robberies, there were uh, all kinds of awful things happening because there was no, even the police were doing weird things. I mean, there was just no established government in order and the troops had to come in to restore that order. So you saw even a little slice of what he's speaking about in the scripture. Even the pagan Roman government kept some type of order and they were pagans. However, the irony is that the Roman government actually built the Roman roads that went out in a straight usually in straight directions, and they were patrolled by Roman troops. And it would protect the travelers from pirates and things like that. But what it did, ironically, was it actually helped to spread the gospel. Evangelization was big under this Roman infrastructure. And if the barbarians would have taken over, which they tried many times, and annihilated the Roman government, it would have been much difficult for the gospel to get out. So there's a little irony there for you. But it also shows us if we go back to Daniel 2 and Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the metal man, you know, the head of gold and, you know, the silver, the, uh, you know, the bronze, the iron, uh, which was different forms of government, and then this rock, this stone, uncut with human hands, which was a picture of the Lord, came and smashed the, 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 um, the metal man into pieces, and it filled the whole earth. And that was a picture of eventually human government will come to a close, and we will be directly ruled as a theocracy by God himself. And we can compare what, what, how God rules in a righteous way and see, gee, this, this is great compared to anything that men had to do. So we get to look forward to that. I'm going to read Romans 13, which is definitely uh, parallels this. Romans 13, seven verses, starting with verse 1. Now this is the Apostle Paul, and he says this. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid uh, of the authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same, for he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. Remember, we're believers. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Customs to whom customs. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. So the ideal situation is that evildoers are terrified and punished by the authorities. And in verse 6, we pay taxes. You know, a lot of us don't want to pay taxes. Uh, but we look at some of the systems and think that they're a little unfair in some because of all the, um, the waste. But the bottom line is the government is there to take the tax money, provide an infrastructure, provide a government, and maintain order in a society. And we'll come back to that. Second question commonly asked, 
How should we feel about capital punishment, the death penalty? I remember when uh, Ted Bundy, who murdered dozens of women, serial killer, uh, was found guilty and they were going to execute him, that there was a vigil outside. People said, well, we're Christians and they had candles and they were praying and they were you know, protesting the death penalty. So how should we feel about that? Don't forget, capital punishment is in the New Testament also. Don't make the mistake. Jesus spoke about us dealing with others, interpersonal relationships, but he, he didn't, he wasn't a, um, um, an activist against the death penalty. Jesus came to fulfill Mosaic law. He didn't come to destroy it. Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness was, is still applicable even today. So Mosaic law is really where we get our understanding of capital punishment. If you look at some of the laws when they were first started, you can see some parallels in the scripture. Of course, they've changed over a few hundred years, but it, it, it really was taken from Judeo-Christian values. So um, Chuck Smith, who I think is one of the most uh, kindly and gracious men I've ever met, uh, the, you know, he's the guy who started the whole Calvary movement. I, I was actually surprised, but I shouldn't have been. He was reading through the Old Testament and the laws of punishment for, you know, these heinous crimes. And Chuck Smith stopped and he said, you know, today the courts are more concerned with criminals' rights than they're concerned with the victims' rights. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, it was flipped. The victim was compensated. The victim was avenged. The victim was protected. And today, again, a lot of our laws are designed to, you know, full confession. Nobody could have figured it out the way they confessed it. You couldn't make this stuff up. And because of a technical glitch, the person gets off. And it's, it's really not fair uh, in today's society. So elements in government, especially with capital punishment, number one, is to punish evil. Number two is to protect society. And number three, to promote peace and freedom to its subjects. This is a hard thing to actually even speak about because when you're talking about life and death and you're talking about, unfortunately, putting a person's uh, life in the hands of a human government, then, you know, we run into these problems because human government is not perfect and, and bad things do happen. And, and you know, but in the, in the grand scheme of things, the whole idea is for human government to work and to accomplish these three goals. Third question. Can a Christian enlist in the military? I would say the answer is yes to that. We have a young man in our fellowship who I'd be more than happy and proud to pray for him and see him off because he's going into the military next year. That's his prayerful decision. Um, if you remember, Peter dealt with the Apostle Peter, dealt with Cornelius, the centurion, and he led him to Christ, and he told him a bunch of things he had to do. Not one of them was leave your job. Uh, Jesus spoke to the Roman centurion and lauded him. Uh, and praised him for his faith. And he said, I haven't seen this much faith in Israel. Didn't tell him to leave his job. John the Baptist, when he preached at the Jordan, and the soldiers said, you know, they were convicted by his message. So what should we do as soldiers? And John said, don't rip people off. Don't uh, accuse somebody falsely. But he didn't tell them to resign. So this is very interesting when we look at this. Uh, and the scripture says that God put these authorities here. Somebody's got to do it. Now, the only thing I would say is if that is your decision, maintain your walk. You don't get a pass for doing everything that your company does, even if it's wrong. You stand before God as an individual. Take, for instance, World War II. Liberating the Jews from, a concentra from concentration camps was laudable. That was applaudable, right? That was uh, something that we should have done. However, in that same war, the Allies did some pretty nasty things. They firebombed the German city of Dresden. 
and pretty much put that, that city into a, a, a fireball and many innocent civilians were killed. There was no military resistance and they knew that. So if you told me that you were a, a pilot in Dresden and you refused to firebomb those citizens, you would be in the right. You might get court-martialed or something to that effect, but you don't go along with what everybody else is doing. That's mob mentality. So these are some things to understand. Um, I would say this, that any president or leader, a king that sends a nation to war, that's got to be a prayerful decision. That is a hard decision because you know lives are going to be lost. You better make sure that it's a righteous cause as a leader before you do something like that. And I would say it's even tougher for the individual serviceman or woman, you know, because they have to pretty much try to follow the laws of what their superiors are saying. But, you know, there's also moral issues to deal with. So is the answer to always be a pacifist? There were some elements of pacifism in the United States, and they said, why are we going to war with Europe and Japan? We should just stay here and be isolationists. Now, if we didn't enter the war, is it possible that 12 million Jews might have been killed, or 20 million, or hindered the state of Israel? Well, we know God's plan was for Israel to eventually have a state, so we were, I believe, in some instances, part of his plan uh, to go in and, and fight Nazism. Uh, so, the, so you look at these things, and I would say this. I support our military. I think we should be praying for them. They're, they're young men and women who a lot of times just come right out of high school, and, uh, you know, they have to make some very hard decisions. So we need to pray for their judgment. We support the military. We send uh, cases of Bibles to Afghanistan and Iraq, and any, any um, issue that comes up across our desk, we try to support the military in any way that we possibly can. Fourth question what about <laughs> a bloody revolt against the government? Remember the American Civil War? I mean, the American Revolutionary War, prior to the Civil War. Well, how many of you know your American history? Where there was the Stamp Act, you know, raised some hands in the back. The Stamp Act really irritated the colonists because it was a way for King George to uh, fund his wars across the seas, and the colonists felt that they were getting, you know, the short end of the stick in that. There was the quartering of the troops, forcing the troops into people's homes and they had to allow them to uh, provide for them. There was taxation without representation, remember that? We learned that in school, taxation without representation. There was the Boston Massacre, the Boston Tea Party, uh, the First Continental Congress, which really irritated the crown. So what you had was a situation where even in the, understand this, in the Boston Massacre, there were a lot of colonists who were angry with those that taunted the troops. The over, you know, they were uh, outnumbered. They taunted them. Shots were fired. Some of the colonists got killed. There still were many loyalists in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the colonies to, to the British crown, right? Even Ben Franklin, I saw a thing on Ben Franklin. He was a loyalist for a long time, but he kept being pushed into these positions, and eventually he uh, went with the, uh, the colonists. So it's very interesting to look at that uh, that portion of American history. Now, I will tell you this. I am as red, white, and blue as they come, but biblically, you can't show me where we had the right to go to war against the British crown. You know, as a pastor, sometimes I have to take an unpopular position. Okay, now I'm not saying that over the generations as, as America grew and supported Israel and was the most generous in, in her contributions to other countries and uh, um, uh, sent out missionaries and you know America has done a lot of great things over the years and I think that God has honored that you know we try to adhere to Judeo-Christian values but if you really follow your history 
and you go back to that period of time, most of the, uh, even the preachers were using the Old Testament and saying that King George was like Pharaoh and uh, George Washington was like Moses. You can't do that, you know? They, they completely ignored a lot of these scriptures that I'm reading. Listen, it happened, but if you're going to ask me that question, again, it's unpopular, but I'm going to tell you that biblically, we didn't have the right to do that. Now, some ask the question today. Um, oh, let me just back up for a minute. Titus 3, which I didn't read, also supports this. Uh, Matthew 22, Jesus said, render to Caesar what Caesar's, render to God what is God's. And that was specifically uh, speaking about taxes. So kind of takes the, the air out of those sales. Today, you know, we, we, there's a lot of talk about taxes going up. And there are some that even talk about seceding from the government. And I would say we don't have the right to do it violently. We have the right, number one, to vote. I vote. We should vote. We have the right to write our sen senators. I think I did it once, and they sent me back a form letter. <laughs> you know, had somebody else stamp it, and all right. That got me nowhere. We have the right to start up grassroots movements. And we have the right to speak critically of our government, but that, there's a line that we can't cross as believers biblically. All right? And I'm going to continue more, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it as we, we continue through this. Also, the overarching caveat to all this is that, now, because you're going to say, gee, what about some of these laws? Do I have to follow some of these laws? In the Bible, the only time that we can um, transgress man's laws is when it comes in conflict with God's laws. And that is a very important piece to this puzzle. Uh, Pastor Wombrand, when the whole thing with prayer in school uh, and all these things were going on for, for decades, uh, he started Voice of the Martyrs, very uh, godly man, um, very concerned about the persecuted church. And they asked them, they said, in America, there's a lot of things going on, and there's uh, all these laws that are saying we can't pray. What do you think we should do? Pastor Wombrand said, just bow your head and pray. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Sometimes we as Christians have to make everything a public fanfare, but nobody can stop you from bowing your head and just giving it to God. You know, are we showing off or are we just giving God our best? Just bow your head and pray. But anyway, uh, Acts 4.18, now this involves Peter, the disciples Peter and John. Uh, they were going out into the square and they were preaching Jesus. They were evangelizing. And the, uh, the rulers at the time, and there were federal rulers, the Roman rulers, and they also they allowed some local government, um, you know, the Jews can police their own and things of that nature. So, of course, the religious establishment, which really had authority, uh, told them to stop doing this. And I'll read you what, what, what goes on here. Verse 18, And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And they were further threatened, but Peter and John went right back and started preaching the gospel again. So they did transgress man's laws, but, um, you know, he, you, have to, you have to adhere to God uh, primarily. So let me just give you a, a real-life um, possible situation. Let's say, uh, you know, there's this whole hubbub about the health care and how they're trying to sneak... Uh, taxpayer-funded abortion in there, and they seem to have done it overseas, and, you know, there's a lot going on, there's a lot of swell. Let's just say the government said tomorrow that every Christian has a, a, a civic duty to uh, go into an abortion, abortion clinic, clinic at least once in their life and be a part of the performing of an abortion. That's the law. Well, I would say, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. I'm not, I'm not doing it. So there's a real-life example 
Could it happen? Probably not, but at least you have an idea of, of an example that I'm trying to make here. Um, and the fifth question, this is a good one, can Christian be police officers? <laughs> Two years to go and I'm out. Um, same rationale for soldiers. You see, in, in the times of the Romans, the Romans, the troops served as police and military. Now, we, we know that we have police for every branch and county and municipal and um, uh, you know, federal and all that kind of stuff. So we have so many differentiations of law enforcement. But in many countries, uh, the police are also the military. They're the same unit. They keep the local peace. But they also can be mustered together to stop a foreign enemy from invading. So if you're from another country, you would understand that concept better. I'm just breaking it up because in America, it's different for us. And I would say the same thing. Some young men have come to me and asked me, you know, I'm thinking of taking the test. They're, you know, strong Christians. And I would say, you, you got to maintain your walk. I said, you got to maintain your walk. And uh, uh, the job can be very stressful. It can be tempting. It can be, uh, a lot of things can happen. You, you can't, you, you have to have a strong walk before you go into this job. That would be my um, counsel to these young guys and ladies who are interested. Now, on another subject, let's continue forward. I've been 18 years on patrol, had a very wonderful career. I've got a lot of medals for saving people's lives, a lot of fun, had a great times. I'm trying to just do these last two years and hopefully collect whatever the, the, the government owes me in a sense. Uh, but I've never had to shoot anyone. People ask me that question too. However, if I, go, if I go to a call of a liquor store being held up and you're on your way out and you turn that shotgun towards me and I tell you drop the gun, drop the gun, and you don't, I didn't get the marksman award for nothing. The Bible says that we don't bear the sword in vain. Now, we don't carry the Gladius anymore. We carry a nice Glock 22, 40 caliber with 15 rounds. But you get the point, you know what I'm saying? You know, they wouldn't understand that if Peter or... or Paul wrote that, but you, you get the idea of, of what, what it's trying to say here. Doesn't mean I hate criminals. I live a very bizarre life because I've actually been in prison doing prison ministry. I love criminals. You know, I love to go in there and preach to my brothers, uh, in, uh, you know, to evangelize them, to come to Christ and not do this stuff anymore. You know, don't go back out on the street and fall back into that same lifestyle. So, you know, it's kind of a creepy feeling when you, you go in there and they close these steel gates behind you and you're with all these... Uh, convicts, but you know what? The Holy Spirit is good. I mean, it's been a very rewarding going into the prisons and talking to those guys about the Lord. So um, it's just it's just a job that I do. Uh, and just I'll throw a few interesting facts, law facts. Do you realize that when a police officer or a law enforcement officer shoots somebody and they go down, they're, obviously they're supposed to disarm them, but they also have to immediately render first aid whether it's CPR or stop the bleeding until the first aid can arrive. We're not executioners. We're there to do a job. We're there to stop and keep the peace, and that's it. Um, also, did you know that as a civilian, you are not allowed to resist an unlawful arrest that's supposed to play out in the courts, but you can resist unlawful force. There's a difference there. Now, I don't recommend after church that you try that out. I'm just letting you know. <laughs> Hey, where are you calling from? The prison. Yeah, it worked. All right. <laughs> and then the other question is, what about a Christian purchasing a legal firearm um, to protect their family? It's not immoral. The Bible talks about protecting our family. Um, in New York, interestingly enough, the law says that if an intruder comes into your home, you have a duty to retreat. 
and you have to prove that you retreated before you use deadly force. In New Jersey, you don't have a, a duty to retreat. Stuff interesting, isn't it? There are other states, especially down south in the Midwest, where it's called, <laughs> you're laughing, you ever hear of castle doctrine? Your home is your castle. If somebody even comes on your property, uh, there's been some interesting things that have happened down there in the news, uh, but basically, you're on your own if you step foot on somebody else's property. But it's not like that in New Jersey. Um, I would just say this, um, and again, this is a hard subject for me even to preach because it's, it has to do with hurting people, it has to do with life and death, it has to do with split decisions. It's a very difficult thing. Uh, so we always want to be prayed up and pray that the Lord is with us. Uh, so we make good decisions. But I would say this, if you're you know, on self-defense, if you're climbing in my window and you have a gun and you're intending to hurt my family, after I stop you and you're on the floor, I will more than be more than happy to tell you about Jesus. <laughs> but you got to drop the gun and you got to be disabled. You know what I'm saying? And listen, a person puts themselves in that situation. There's actually a friend of mine uh, lived in a, a town in Georgia where you were required, every homeowner was required to have a gun. Guess how many burglaries there are there every year? Zero. <laughs> They'll go to the next town. So, and this is what you're dealing with. When sin entered the world, death entered the world in more than one way. And when sin entered the world, animosity between God's creatures, between God's children, entered the world. It's a very hard, uh, it's a very hard thing uh, to deal with. Now, uh, there will, you may see, this is kind of funny because if anyone asks me about a gun permit, especially Christians, it's usually in a whisper. I wanted to ask you about a gun permit, but I don't want everyone in the church to think I'm a kook. You know what I'm saying? So you, you, you get the, these are never like open conversations. They're always whispered because we have the stigma of what the media tells us we should be about and what we shouldn't be about. Uh, and oftentimes the media does take things out of context and puts it back on Christians and say, you're not acting Christ-like. Uh, Jesus spoke to more than one person that he healed of a sin disease, and he said, you better not sin anymore or a worse thing may happen to you. Jesus wasn't as touchy-feely and pacifist as the news media makes him out to be. Even the woman caught in adultery, they leave it there. He says to her, see, there was an issue of hypocrisy with the religious, religious leaders. He didn't say, don't do Mosaic law. He said, I'm not going to stone you. And you know, any of these guys who was, were without sin you know, knock yourself out, and they drop their, their stones. And he said to her, go and sin no more. Don't do this anymore. You know, you, you find yourself in a worse position. So um, it's, understand, uh, it's, it's understandable there. Now, the whole caveat to this is a little disclaimer, public surface uh, announcement. Uh, if you, you do have a firearm, keep it safe. Do what they tell you to do. Lock it. Keep it away from children. Um, if you're if you have constant domestic violence issues between spouses, maybe you shouldn't get a gun. If you've got a flaky kid with a drug problem, maybe you shouldn't get a gun. So it doesn't always work. You know, you really have to pray about this kind of stuff. Seven. What about governments where it's made illegal to be a Christian? That's a good question. I, I like to paint myself into a corner. I don't know why. But we have a missionary, or we had a missionary, he's since been off the missions field for about a year or two. He um, was a missionary in Guatemala, you know, 17-year-old, from 17 to 21. He gave his youth to these people. It's amazing. And they look at him as one of their own. Uh, he, he helped to build schools and latrines and all kinds of stuff. He was a, just a great kid. He would always send, you know, he, he came up here a few times in the, in the school and, and talked about what he had done down there. Great kid, by himself. 
Um, and he went to some of these remote villages that nobody wanted to go into, and God really was with him. Well, there was a change in government in the city he was in, and the police chief that came in was a communist. Now, communism, if you study it, is, has to be, there's an adherence to atheism. It's just by the dictionary terminology. Uh, and he didn't like our missionary, and he felt that he was too popular, and this guy wanted to be popular. So he had Stephen um, beat up, arrested by the police in Guatemala, handcuffed, beat up. He lost um, part of his hearing in one ear. They busted his eardrum. He had boot prints in his back. I mean, it was pretty bad what they did to him. Uh, and they threw him in jail on these ridiculous charges. And it was interesting because I had many conversations with him, and I said, Steve, I support whatever you want to do. You want to make a run for the border? You know, what do I have to do for you? You want to stay and, and you, know, you need to pray about this. I can't make the decision for you. Well, he chose to stay, and what was really cool was the judge looked into the case, found that the police department was in error, arrested the police who beat him up, and set Stephen free on all charges. I mean, that was the hand of God, because it looked really bleak for those of you who were here uh, for him for a while. So if you go into a country and you're maybe a missionary or you're involved in a, a country and you know, the, the government just flips and it's, it's anti-Christian, you may have a problem on your hands. You may prayerfully choose to stay, or prayerfully choose to go. That's your decision. Um, and you can find yourself being an enemy of the state. So one, two more points that, again, I want to touch is, number one, what about a place where there's slavery or ethnic cleansing? Okay, that's pretty bad stuff. Well, we know that, for the most part, um, Africans who were taken from their homeland in Africa uh, were taken by usually the Spanish, and there were other slave traders. They would be brought to... Europe and the United States, and um, you know we abolished slavery in our country. But what's interesting is part of the American uh, Revolutionary War, part of the, the uh, talk of the colonists was King George is enslaving us. This is in slavery. This is slavery. Here's the irony. When the colonists seceded from the British, they kept slaves for decades. But the British in 1833 abolished slavery. So here's the hypocrisy and the irony was that the Brits got rid of slavery before we did. So the point is that if you are living in a, a, a city or something and these Europeans come to take and kidnap your strongest men, you have the right to take up arms right here, Romans 13. You have a government, you get to protect yourself, your family and your young men. So um, in that case, you know, I, I think it's something that's legitimate to do. Okay. So this brings us to verse 15, now that we're past the whole idea and the, and the seven questions there. Uh, verse 15, it says that, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. The goal of good citizenship and uh, civics-mindedness is to be a good witness to the surrounding community and the world. Uh, to, the goal is to give, for us as believers, at, with our example, is to give no reason for the surrounding world to blaspheme God because of our poor representation. See, that's a big one. That's why we are supposed to be a good witness, because we represent God. And in the Greek, it's a little bit more powerful. In the Greek, it says that uh, by doing this, you muzzle the ignorance and stupidity of men. That's literally what it means. Uh, because, you know, there are forces to be, and, and it's a spiritual issue, that have a problem with Christianity. And they always try to find the worst case and put that in the news and say, this is what Christians are, and it's usually not true. Um, and that brings me to bad examples. Remember Waco, David Koresh, the compound that was raided by the uh, ATF? 
BATF. Uh, that was pretty bad. A lot of people died. A lot of shots were fired. Um, the, uh, the new Mormon is, is a break off from the Latter-day Saints. They believe very strongly in having multiple wives. So uh, I've even seen this on different shows. They actually interview these families. There's a guy and he's got four wives and it's just so weird, you know, but um, they call themselves Christians. Neither situation to me was behaving as Christians, but this is what the media associates Christians with, and that's a problem. So they're, they're in a sense, don't call yourself Christian because you're giving God a black eye. Don't do it. So our actions, obviously, you know, Jesus um, told his disciples before his departure, um, I'm, I'm leaving, you know, I'm going to the cross, you know, maybe take something and buy a sword. And I believe he meant it for just personal protection. Jesus never said to hole up in a compound or to, um, you know, fight the government and take over. That's just weird, weird stuff, all right? And it's not anywhere in the scripture. So we have no plans. I just want you to uh, be, you know, comfortable with this. At Calvary Chapel Crossfields, we have no plans of making this place into a bunker, putting ammunition and turrets, and we're just not, that's just weird, we're not doing it. So if that's what you're thinking that we might do, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Sandbags in the basement and the whole thing. But I will say this on a serious note. Uh, in this year, from January to June, 86 uh, police have been killed in the United States. Not injured, but killed. Uh, it's a, the numbers are shooting up. What I'm telling you is that there is a lot of fear and hopelessness and instability in our country. And the two parties that oppose each other, you know, the strong adherence to the right and to the left are at each other's throats. And um, I just think that there's probably going to be more instability to come. So I would say this, we should not be the fear mongers. We should not be telling people, you know, crazy stories about how the government's going to get us. We should be the ones when there are those who don't know the Lord and they are in fear and they should be because they don't know the Lord. If they're counting on the government to help you, there's problems. We should be the ones, the voices of reasons and the calming assurance that when somebody comes to us and doesn't know the Lord and they're in fear, to try to calm their fears and, and give them the real message of hope that we know is a living hope in Jesus Christ. Okay? Verse 16, he says, we're free, but we don't use our freedom or liberty as a cloak for vice, but as servants of God. We have freedom and liberty given to us by God. Our sins are forgiven no matter what we do, but that's not a reason for us to just go out there and be in the flesh and do some of these, some evil, right? Um, verse 17, and he, he leaves it with this, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now, I'll take this in as progression from, from the Greek. In other words, honor all, honor the king. That's the first step. Now it becomes greater. Love the brotherhood. That word is agape. That's that highest form, that divine love of the brotherhood. And then we continue up, fear God. Right? We're not to fear the government. We're not to be in reverence of the government. We fear God. He deserves our highest honor. Okay? We should be more concerned with pleasing God than anybody else. Now, there are some presidents and kings and leaders of our country and many other countries that don't deserve uh, any honor. However, we honor the office. We honor because God has allowed that person to get into that office, okay? And um, you know what? Maybe we may be a good witness to them. And maybe when they die, they'll see a good example and they stand before the, before the Lord. They have no excuse for the life that they lived. But the bottom line is good Christians are good citizens. That's how we can wrap this up, right? Good Christians are good citizens. 
Now I'll just give you a, a real life, well, it, it is kind of funny um, talking about sandbags and stuff. There was a guy, he no longer comes here, but he, he came into the office, Dave and I were in the office, and he had this whole um, computer program and this whole, very well done, of this kind of documentary of how the government was going to come for us and how the UN had all these plastic bins and they were body bags and they were all piled up waiting for the next disaster and then under, under the cover of night the, the, the government was going to come for us. And he goes, I really want to show this to the church. So I said, dude, you know what, I'll let you know when I need that. You know, of course I never, this is weird. But it's just that weirdness, that fear, that you know, bunker mentality, it's nowhere in the scripture. You know, uh, the apostles were persecuted, Christians were persecuted by the Roman government. What'd they do? They just continued to give the gospel, right? And they, even some of them, there were many of them in, in their deaths were as peaceful as could be. You read Fox's Book of Martyrs. I mean, we even have opened up our doors on a personal level, you know, now let's make it personal, to Jamesburg. You know, we've said, listen, we, we, we don't have smoke alarms. We want to put in a smoke alarm system. We want to upgrade our electricity. And we said, come in, check us out. We are a good witness to Jamesburg. Because usually, <laughs> people hide from the inspectors. You know, don't, close, don't let an inspector in. Pretend, shut all the lights off. Pretend we're not here, you know. But we're saying, hey, we want to do this. We want to do the right thing. And, uh, you know, whatever, say what you got. And listen, they, they have all these codes, and they make you spend all this money. But they, they're also trying to protect the people in this assembly, too. So... Um, you know, we, we want to be good citizens. Now, I'm just going to cover uh, 18 through 25, and then we'll wrap it up for today. And I'll just put this, these next few verses as submission in the workplace. Okay, so let me read this. Uh, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully, for what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your fault, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer for it, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Now, this doesn't sound good, and based on everything I read, it almost sounds like contradictory, but it's not. Um, the word in Greek is oiketes, for servants. The word that we covered in verse 16 was doulos. Okay, doulos is that slavery. When we speak about when, when the disciples spoke about being servants of Christ, they're saying, I, I put myself into slavery and I do whatever the Lord tells me to do because I trust him as a good Lord and master. That is a very strong term for slavery. In this verse, that word is not used. It's oikites. And what that uh, refers to is more of a domestic servant. You saw this with the Hebrews. You know, you, your family made some bad investments or whatever, and over the years you owed money to another family. You would say, you'd work out a contract, an agreement, I'll work for you for five years, I'd like to work this off. Okay, and there was a, it was a contract, it was an employer-employee relationship. Um, back then it was common, today we don't really see it except in certain cultures. All right, so if you're from uh, some different cultures, you may say, oh yeah, that happens in my home country all the time. Okay. Now, the parallel today, let's bring it to Americans. I would look at this as an employer-employee relationship, right? If you work for someone, do a good job. It's a simple thing there. Um, I've heard this more than once, and it's, it's disheartening. I'll never hire a Christian again. Yeah, you, I've heard that. Um, so it's bad enough when we hurt others, but when we do it to ourselves in the body of Christ, it's worse. That's so a really bad example. So my question is, what is our attitude today? You know, for those of you who are employed, what is your attitude towards your boss? 
He or she may not be a good person, might, may, may not be a nice person, may, not, may take advantage of you. But do we say, you know, I'm smiling on the outside, but inside I'm smacking your face? You know what I'm saying? I mean, you know, what is our attitude towards our employers? Do we do a good job? Do we do just the bare minimum to get by? And these are important questions that we should ask ourselves. Um, even on a broader concept, if we do wrong and we're punished, uh, we deserve that punishment. However, if we do right, and we take abuse for it. The Lord is our avenger, and I've seen that. I'll just give you an example. A family friend of ours, a Ukrainian woman, she um, came to America, and she actually was a house cleaner. Um, she cleaned houses of different people within her sort of culture. But within that subculture, you know, you don't really call the police, you don't call the outside authorities, but they really took advantage of this woman, and they sometimes cheated her for pay. And I'll tell you what, whenever we saw this woman, she just had this glow, this smile. None of that stuff bothered her. She knew that the Lord was her avenger. So a real-life example in my life of a woman that did take abuse, and she did a great job, and it wasn't fair. And we, I, I stuck up for her, you know. And she's like, it's okay. You know, she just was a wonderful person. So I've seen that too. If we really trust in the Lord, he sees these things, and he won't let it go uh, unpunished. A broader application is when we're... Sometimes we struggle. You know, we're doing the right thing and we're struggling. And we're getting blasted for it. You know, but take heart, God sees. And sometimes that's a bitter pill to swallow. It's one thing if you do something wrong and you get busted and you're like, yeah, I kind of deserve that. But when you're really doing the right thing and you get uh, busted for it or you get hurt by it, um, that, that's a hard thing to swallow. You see, God calls us to do the right thing. And I've said this before. He doesn't necessarily call us to do the easy thing. And, and in our minds, you know, we're Americans. We have rights. We have, you know, redress. Um, but, but if I'm doing right, this is what should happen. But that doesn't always happen. And we see that here in the Scripture. Verse 21. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, having as us as, having, well, excuse me, leaving us as an example, that you should follow his steps. And this next verse he takes from Isaiah 53, who, referring to the Messiah, committed no sin, nor was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Again, this is a type of submission without resentment, and that's the key, without resentment, you know. Um, according to this, when, uh, when Jesus was being led to the cross and crucified, he had not one drop of malice in him. This is one of those insights into Scripture that we can see Jesus for who he was, and we could even see what was going on inside in his thought patterns. Getting whipped, where his flesh was torn open, getting beat up, punched in the face, having a crown of thorns jammed onto his head. Man, that smarts. For those of you who've had any, in, in a small measure, you know, your adrenaline goes up and you, you get sometimes even mad. But Jesus took it, he, they nailed him to the cross. He took on the sins of the world. You know, he's the person that's, that's suffered more than anybody else that's ever walked the face of the earth. Uh, but he didn't threaten. He didn't revile. He didn't say, I'm going to get you. Uh, he told Peter to put his sword away. And from the cross, he said, Father, forgive the, these sins. Forgive what they're doing to me. They don't know what they're doing. They're ignorant, you know. And, and just all the while, being nailed to that cross, bleeding, his, you know, his tongue was parched, he, probably would have done anything for a glass of water 
you know, and, he, and he's, you know, being burned by the sun. The, the birds were ready to pick at him when, when, he, when he breathed his last. Think about all that, that scenario. He didn't revile it. I would have been mad. I would have been, I would have been you know, uh, it's only by a work of the Spirit that you can take that type of abuse and still show that agape love on top of that. And I've said this before. I'm convinced that in, in any marriage that's in trouble, if agape love is performed by at least one of the parties, uh, that marriage will do well. But I would just say this. I mean, I've learned a lot of lessons from this over the years. Um, you know, in my own personal life, I, I thought I was taking on righteous causes. And, um, you know, usually the cause was to better me in some way or make me look good. And if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of times when we take up the sword and we take up a cause, there's a little bit of, you know, self-preservation involved or something like that. And I remember my pastor is very gracious. He said to me, you know, Joe, <laughs> he's very calm. He says, it's very impressive that you're not concerned what man thinks about you. He goes, but if you keep behaving like this, no one's going to take you seriously anymore. <laughs> I was like, ooh, that was, that's, that's smart. But it, it really was a, a turning point in my life. Um, proper submission equals maturity. And I say proper submission. And wait till we get to chapter 3, it's going to get even hotter. So verse 24, I'm going to have Dave teach that one. I'm going to be out for that. <laughs> Who himself bore our sins uh, in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And this really puts it all in perspective, right? He bore those, our sins on that tree, on his body, so that we might live for righteousness, and wherever it may take us. Um, he is, is the shepherd and overseer of our souls. And if we really call him that, our good shepherd, then we will submit to him and his ordinances. And we will submit to his word and what his word says that we need to submit to. Submission to authority is a normal part of the human experience. It is. Because if you have the attitude that I'm a rebel and I answer to no one, you're answering to your own fleshly desires by default. So, you know, congratulations. And the flesh and your emotions are a pretty nasty taskmaster. I'd rather submit myself to the Lord. What Christ did for us on the cross translates into the following. Number one, he was an example of suffering wrong when he was pure. And brothers and sisters, there may be a time where we're called to that. He submitted when he didn't have to. And we also may be called to that. He was submissive as a sign of maturity, and, as, and when we're submissive, excuse me, it's a sign of maturity and a sign that we walk with Christ, and we, we may be called to that. Or we can just give the bare minimum as believers, just concerned about squeaking into heaven, and many are okay with that. We can treat God the way we treat our parents, our boss, our government, or anyone else who we should be under the authority of, because if we're not submitting to anyone in this world, we cannot say, oh, I'm submitted to the Lord. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. You know, we can, we can be convenient Christians, cultural, carnal, any of those things, right? The deadly seas. Or we can have real purpose in our lives. We can follow our Savior. We can emulate him in every possible way and have others see Jesus in us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word.